Continuing in our Return of the King series, we're going to be talking about the timeline of the tribulation today. So in your Bibles, we're going to be going through a lot of different scriptures. Mostly, we're going to be kind of surveying the book of Revelation. So we're going to be going through uh, Revelation chapter 1 and talking just a little bit about various chapters all the way to chapter 19. So I didn't put the scriptures on the back of the bulletin this time just because it's kind of a little bit more of a survey through it. We'll also be in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which will actually be the first uh, scripture that we reference this morning. So we're coming up on the first week of June in a few weeks here. And this is the week that all the kids look forward to because it's the beginning of summer vacation. For me, it was not only the start of my summer vacation, but it was a time that my parents would typically start planning my trip north to be with my grandparents for the summer in Hayward. There'd be a whole ton of phone calls. And this was phone calls like back in the late 70s, early 80s. These were things that you timed, right? Because long distance costs a lot of money. Remember when long distance used to cost money? There, there would be like two-minute conversation. My dad would be sitting there just about with a stopwatch going, okay, 10 seconds, five, four, and at three, he would hit the off button because he, he, we got, I think, free long distance for two minutes or some ridiculous thing like that. So there was a lot of phone calls going back and forth like that. And they'd figure out somewhere halfway between here and Hayward to meet and drop me off, and my grandparents would pick me up. And... I uh, usually ended up somewhere around Portage. Now, my father is very much a planner. Everything has to be planned to the exact moment and exact minute of when he is going to get somewhere. I think it comes from his experience as a, a senior chief petty officer in the military. And he, he would just have it all laid out. We will have the car packed by 1,800 hours the night before we leave. Everything will be in there. We will leave at 0500 the next morning. If you are not in the car at 0500, you are not going because we will be leaving. And 0500, by the way, meant 0450. Just to, me, just to be clear. We never left at 5. We left it at 10 to 5. So we would just drive straight through, no stops, until we got to our destination, even if we we're squeezing our legs together because we had to go to the bathroom so bad, he was going to make sure he got there on time. I don't think my dad has ever been late for anything because he is just that kind of uh, punctual kind of person. If you ask Tammy, this is kind of how I lay out our trips. And I guess I do have a lot of my dad in me, but in this I am definitely my father's son. See, for me, having an itinerary helps me to prepare, helps me to make the trip more enjoyable, helps me to backward plan from destination to leaving time to eliminate any possible holdup of that kind of trip. Or, you know, assume, you know, or look for traffic delays, look for construction, look for just anything that can slow us down and keep us from getting our destination. I want to eliminate that, plan around it, and plan enough time that we can get there when we want to get there. So the Bible says that one day very soon, we're going to go through a seven-year period called the tribulation. That word tribulation, um, in the Aramaic, where it talks about this time, means um, 
or this time of trouble means the word tribulation. And God has given us an itinerary for the seven years of the tribulation. He even wrote it down for us and sent it along in the Bible for us so that this generation that is on the brink of this time of, of distress and this time of tribulation will know what is coming. Now I know it's messing me up. It's this mask. Looking over this timeline will help us to anticipate and prepare. And, in fact, this is why God put it in Scripture. So during this fourth installment of our Return of the King series, I want to walk us through the timeline of the seven years of tribulation that are coming. And we're going to cover 19 of the most fascinating chapters of the whole Bible, in my opinion. And that is going to be Revelation 1 through 19. So strap in, I'm going to give a lot of information. One of the reasons I didn't put all these scriptures down is so if you wanted to take notes, you had plenty of room on the back of your bulletin. Let's start off with prayer. Father God, we're going to begin a study this morning that is going to be very fast, it's going to be very um, thorough and, and, and specific about certain things. And some of this stuff can be kind of frightening to us when we consider the future. But Father, we know that it should not be frightening to us because you've already been there. You've already made a way. And to me, your word is very clear that we won't have to see much of this, at least not from an earthly perspective. We'll be watching with the great cloud of witnesses in heaven. So, Father, just help us to understand this with that heart. But help us to understand this itinerary, because it is what we can share with others about the coming days, Father. Lord God, be with us this morning. Open up our hearts and our minds to hear your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, according to many experts in biblical prophecy, the last major prophecy that needs to be fulfilled prior to the beginning of the tribulation, not the rapture, but the beginning of the tribulation, is something that is called Ezekiel's War. You can read about it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's a war between Israel and the nation of Russia, Iran, and Turkey. They are called Gog, Magog, and I don't remember the third, but they are, they are very specific about that happening uh, prior to the beginning of the tribulation. Now, interestingly, you, you might be thinking, well, how in the heck can Russia invade Israel? They're nowhere near Israel. They're, they're thousands of miles away from Israel. Well, interestingly, right now, the three nations of Russia, Iran, and Turkey all have troops stationed across the border from, from Israel and Syria. All three of them are there. The Syrian government, as we know for the last several years, is on the verge of collapsing. And should that happen, the military forces of uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey will be on Israel's northern border. It almost seems like God's word is true. That God has, has orchestrated something to make this come true for us. And it's that God's word is very accurate and has the ability to foretell the future. And that brings us to our first point in our itinerary this morning. That Ezekiel's war is the kickoff, if you will, that will announce that the tribulation is about to begin. 
Ezekiel's war, as I said, is the last major prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the tribulation begins. And if you are a believer in Jesus, when that war breaks out, pack your bags. We're going home. I'm just kidding. You can't bring anything with you. But get ready. Look up to the sky because he's coming soon. It's a starting block, if you will, for the tribulation to begin. The second point in our itinerary of the tribulation is, according to Daniel 9.27, there will be a treaty signed with a world leader who will later be identified as the Antichrist. That's in Daniel 9.27. It says that he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offerings. Now, if you weren't here last week, that Aramaic word for week simply means seven. That's how they would say a week. They would say, well, in seven, we will do this. Seven can also be put in the context of years. And you see that throughout the book of Daniel where they're used interchangeably in that way. And go back to last messages online if you want to hear more about that. And therefore, we know from Daniel and other scriptures that the third point in our itinerary of the tribulation is this truth, that the tribulation is a seven-year period that ends with the glorious return of Jesus in the clouds and coming back to this earth. God's provided us this detailed itinerary. As a matter of fact, that's entirely what the book of Revelation is primarily about. But really, the revelation of the full name of the revelation in the Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. And his return. But it also tells us about prophecy. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And in Revelation chapter 1, John, who was one of the closest friends of Jesus on this earth, who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper, who witnessed, directly witnessed his empty tomb, and spent time with him after the resurrection. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus on the throne room of heaven. He sees him as the Alpha and Omega. And John said when he saw him, he, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now this is the same man who rested back against Jesus during the Last Supper, who had that kind of intimate friendship and relationship with Jesus. Now he, Jesus is so glorious that John can't stand it and he falls to the ground. It's like he fainted in front of him. It's the same Jesus who is revealed in the entirety of the book of Revelation. Revelation describes the tribulation, but its major purpose is not to tell us the future. It's to reveal Jesus to us. And that's something to keep in mind when we're reading that part of the Bible. We look at it for its prophecy. We look at it for its future events. We look at it for the truth of what is going on inside the churches, especially in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it's really all about Jesus being revealed to this earth one last time. Finally, excuse me. Now, Revelation 2 and 3 are letters to the seven churches of John's day. Revelation 4 and 5 picture the throne room of God where the multitudes of heaven are worshiping this Jesus. In Revelation 5, God the Father holds up a scroll 
with seven seals on it. Seven is a biblical number of perfection. So it's really an important scroll. Whenever you see the number seven in the Bible referring to something, it's usually something that is, is held up as, as something of godly perfection. An angel asks this question about this scroll. Who is worthy to open it? You ever have somebody ask an embarrassing question to a crowd and nobody wants to admit something? That's exactly what's happened here. The angel asked the entire multitude of believers that is sitting before the throne, which one of you are worthy to open this? And you can see a lot of shuffling of feet, a lot of heads down. But one worshiper points to Jesus and said, He is worthy. He is worthy to open this scroll. He is the perfect one who won the victory over sin and death. Then onward, the book of Revelation is going to tell us some very frightening things. But before this starts, it's very notable for us to understand that God the Father reveals the power and majesty of His Son first. He does that not only for the believers on this earth, but for the multitude that is standing before him to show them that they have nothing to fear for their loved ones and that we will be safe in his hands. The story of the tribulation period begins in chapter 6 where the lamb peels open the scroll and breaks each of its seven seals one at a time. Each seal releases some sort of devastation on the earth. And that brings us to point four in our itinerary. During the tribulation, God releases judgment through a series of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. You can read about them in Revelation 6, Revelation 8 through 11, and 15 and 16. You see a chronology of God's judgment of sin. It unfolds in a series of sevens because God's judgment is perfect. And that's why during the tribulation, God releases judgment through this series of seals and trumpets and bowls. And it brings us to the fifth point in our itinerary. Revelation introduces seven characters who plays a part in the drama. The first character is the dragon, symbolizing Satan. You see that in Revelation 12. The dragon, or Satan, makes war in heaven for three and a half years until he is defeated by an angel army and thrown to the earth. The second character is the woman. The woman is representing the Jewish people. Now, there have been people who, um, prophecy teachers who have said, well, that's not the church. Well, if you read everything the woman does, it points directly to the Jewish people. And we'll see why in just a moment. We see the woman in Revelation 12, 4, giving birth to a Savior. In Revelation 12, 4, it says that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is directly pointing to Herod enticing um, or the devil enticing Herod to kill every male child in Bethlehem to try to kill Jesus while he was still an infant. 
So we see that as something that is already passed. Revelation 12:5. This woman gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. Speaking of Jesus' victory over death and ascension to heaven. Now in verse 14, it says that the woman, or the Jewish people, was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Revelation 12, 14. Now a time is a year. Times is two years, and half a time is half a year. So at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, the woman begins to experience persecution and is carrying, carried on eagle's wings of deliverance for protection for the rest of the, revel, or the tribulation. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about it in Sunday school. We've talked about it from here, that many of this believe, or many believe this is a reference to Petra and Basra in I, um, the nation of Jordan, that these are two strongholds that God has set up for that time to protect his people while the rest of the world goes through the divine judgments. His people, meaning the Jewish people, will most likely be out of here by that time. The church, I mean. The third character is the beast from the sea. This is representing the Antichrist. The beast has ten crowns, and he's a ruler of many nations. The beast, it says very specifically in Revelation 13, 2, it says that he was like a leopard, his feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, if you refer back to Daniel, remember I said that last week, Daniel is the commentary to the book of Revelation, particularly this time of the tribulation. Now, in Daniel 7, the leopard represents the Greek empire. The bear represented Persia, or modern-day Iran, Iraq. And the lion represented Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. The borders were a little different back then, but those were the symbology of the countries. Therefore, it's likely that the Antichrist will be from the Middle East in some way. The rest of Revelation says in 13.2 that the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. In other words, the devil, Satan, gives his power to this man that we call the Antichrist. Now, in Jewish literature, particularly prophetic literature, things that come from the sea are from the Gentile world. The beast who is the Antichrist will be a demon-possessed Gentile. In Revelation 13.3, it says that one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Many believe that in mockery of what Jesus went through, dying and raising from the dead, that the Antichrist at some point during the tribulation will be killed and risen to life by the power of Satan. Or at least look dead and be risen to life. The Bible then says that he will be allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. In other words, three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation time. That brings us to the fourth character. The fourth character is the beast from the earth, which is symbolic of the false prophet in Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Now, things that come from the earth typically represent things or people that are Jewish. So in the final three and a half years, this beast, or second beast, is also called the false prophet. 
He'll probably Jewish or even the Muslim version of Jesus called the Mahdi. Anybody ever heard of the Mahdi in Islam? He's their Jesus. Except that the Mahdi there comes as a military leader and wipes out everybody who does not follow Allah. That's their version of, of Jesus. And it's prophesied about in their holy book, the Quran. Now that person will come and deceive many, convincing them to follow the Antichrist. The false prophet will control most of the world's economic system through the Antichrist mark. We know it as the mark of the beast. The Bible says that he makes everyone great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of his name. We know that number to be 666. Greek and Hebrew characters both have numeric equivalents and that name somehow adds up to that number. Now the dragon being Satan, the two beasts being the Antichrist and false prophet, form an unholy trinity. What does Satan do with everything? Copy, or he copycats it and uses it to mock God. He's going to do the same thing in the end and form this unholy trinity. But God holds true to his promise to a core group of worshipers that are alive during this time. In Revelation 7 and 14, they are the 144,000. And they make up the fifth um, person introduced during the book of Revelation. The 144,000 are described in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14, where it says, I looked, and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So we're talking about 144,000 Jewish people that will become evangelists. The sixth group of characters in this, in this itinerary are the angelic um, announcers. During this time, three angels fly overhead to announce the eternal gospel. One says, fear God and give him glory, Revelation 14.7. Revelation 14.8 is another angel that says, Babylon the Great has fallen. Another, a third angel says, Anyone who worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. So the excuse that people will try to give of saying, we didn't know, God's not going to let them have that excuse. It'll be angelically proclaimed throughout the entire earth, and everyone will hear it. So in other words, this trio of angels brings the good news, the bad news, and the horrible, ugly news. Now the seventh characters are the people of the harvest. In Revelation 14, 15, it says that the one who is seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. And you're asking, well, what was harvested or who was harvested? Well, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus said, the harvest at the end of the, is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Therefore, just as weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, 
And they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Jesus ends this by saying, let anyone who has ears listen. The sole reason that Jesus left heaven, the sole reason that he laid aside his glory as the only begotten Son of God, the sole reason he took on flesh and live a lowly and limited human life. The sole reason he went to the cross was to as much as possible limit this harvest at the end of the age. As terrible as Satan the dragon is, or the Antichrist, or the false prophet, this harvest is ever going to be God's greatest regret. And I don't mean regret that he made a mistake, but regret in the way that just brings sorrow to his heart. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. Even today, he's holding out his hands and hoping that each and every one of us will turn towards him and accept his love and his forgiveness. He wants us to spend eternity with him rather than away from him in the place where there will be perpetual weeping and gnashing of teeth. While the harvest of the weeds is being burned, the harvest of the righteous will bring rejoicing all over heaven. Revelation says that the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. In other words, God will have all of his kids with him, and everyone will be full of joy. Just to review, Revelation starts with seven messages to seven different churches. It moves to seven sealed judgments, to seven trumpet judgments, to seven characters who all play a part and seven bowls of judgment. The great battle of Armageddon takes place in chapter 17. Seven messages of judgment take place in chapter 17 and 18, and the return of the king takes place in chapter 19. And that brings us to the sixth point in our itinerary of the tribulation, and that's the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is the final battle at the end of this time before the millennial reign of Christ. Here's its description from chapter 16. It says that the sixth poured out his bowl, sixth angel, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up to prepare a way for the kings of the east. And they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, or Valley of Megiddo. One of the, once the troops are assembled in the central valley of Israel, the seventh judgments begin, and then the king returns. And that's our seventh and final point in our tribulation itinerary, and that is the return of Christ. The Bible says, 
there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on this earth. So great was the quake. The great city, Jerusalem, split into three different parts and the cities of the nations fell. But then you see the reaction of the people. They didn't fall in repentance. They didn't fall and say, God, you're right. But instead they shook their fists at him. The timeline of the tribulation ends this way. And here comes a moment that I've been longing for since I became a Christian. It's a time that we should all be looking forward to. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider was faithful and true, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth, that he might strike down the nations with it. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 19, Then I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it the false prophet, who had formed signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and whose, who worshipped the image with its, those signs. Both of them, hallelujah, both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. So at the close of the tribulation, Jesus returns. He's not coming back as a suffering lamb. He is coming back as Lord God Almighty to set up his kingdom here on the earth. So how do we apply this to our life today? Is this just a bunch of inf interesting information? And as I've been studying for the, this series, it's a question I've been asking myself, and I do it really every time I prepare a message for you. I ask myself, what practical use does this teaching have for me or for the people I'm talking to? Is this just information, or does it have meaning for us? And I think we have three things that we need to do with this information. One, it should, it should motivate us to walk closely with Jesus. Jesus has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He promised that if I seek first the kingdom of God, everything else I need will be added on to me. The second thing I need to do is encourage others. That's one of the reasons we're doing this series, so that I can encourage you to be prepared because it's coming. And the third thing is, 
Me personally and all of us here need to pray for and share the way of salvation with everyone we can. And you say, how do I do that? How do I share? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, a trained minister. I'm not an evangelist. How do I share? Well, I'll just encourage you to remember that it's all about Jesus. Take your hint from what Revelation says. In chapter 1, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. In chapter 5, He's the Almighty, the only one worthy, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the Lamb who was slain. In Revelation chapter 6, He's the one who issues us white robes. In 7, He is the sealer of His people. In chapter 11, He's the Messiah. In chapter 12, He's defender of the brethren. In chapter 13, He's the one that writes our name in His book of life. Glory. He's the one in chapter 14 that has His name on our foreheads. He's the Son of Man seated in the clouds of glory. And He's the judge of all the earth. In chapter 15, He's the one we sing to. The Lord God Almighty, King of the nations, and the one all nations will come and worship. In chapter 16, He's the one who's coming like a thief with lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. In chapter 19 that we just read, He is the Lamb of God whose marriage feast every believer is invited to partake in. And finally, He is the rider on the white horse. He tells us He is faithful and true. He's the judge who makes war and dispenses justice. He's the leader of the armies of God. He's the one of whom is written is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. This is the one who is coming. Listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The tribulation is going to be days of great distress. Unequaled in all the world until now. But over all that, those of us who have received Jesus, it means so much more. Because it means He is coming back. And all these trials and tribulations we are going through right now, will seem like a distant memory when we gaze upon Him and His glory, knowing that He will wipe away every tear from our eye, and we will know no more pain and no more death. Last week I said I, I believe about 80% in the, in the pre-tribulation rapture, meaning that Jesus will come to get us before the, the first seal is broken. But I do hold out a little bit of the 20%, just to, we could be through the first four seals. But I believe that before the great tribulation starts, he will definitely come to get us. But either way, would you trust him even in the tribulation? And most importantly, will you be found faithful when he comes? Lord Jesus, just search us and know us this morning. Know if there's anything in our hearts that is holding us back from following you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
point out that speck in our eyes that is, is keeping us from following you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the day for partial Christianity is over. It's been over for years. You can't be a secret Christian anymore. So I ask, Father, that you give us great boldness in these last days. I ask, Father, that you give us a wholehearted devotion to you. And I ask, Lord, that you just empower us with your Holy Spirit like we've never had before. Not necessarily to jump and run in the church and, and do all these things, but a spirit of evangelism that will fall upon us and tell everyone we meet about this Jesus that is coming. Give us great boldness in these last days, Lord. Father God, I just bless your people now. Encourage them during this week. Embolden them during this week. Fill them with the passion and power of Jesus. Not only to talk about Him, but to live like Him. So that all will see and know there is a Savior that loves them. Father God, I ask this in Your name and ask that You bless Your people now. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And we'll see you next week with Brian Bishop coming and speaking.